0: We're effectively an expansionary civilization that has now discovered that in fact we live on an island and we have a choice before us. Do we maintain our commitments to this expansionary economic ideology needlessly to the detriment of our very survival or do we learn to live within the principles of ecology itself? We have to recognize that there's only so far we can push ecological pressure before things start to break down and tipping points begin to cascade.
1: run out of excuses and we are running out of time.
2: We're looking at mass
0: starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe.
1: Change is coming whether you like it or not. This is the Extinction Rebellion podcast.
2: And I'm Jessica Townsend, and today I'm joined by a new presenter, Will, from Money Rebellion. Would you like to tell us what Money Rebellion is? It's obviously part of Extinction Rebellion, or is it?
1: Well, it's, it's all part of the, uh, the rebellion against corrupted, inept institutions that threaten our future. <laughs> We're talking about using our resources where they're really needed and in defiance of a money system that's destroying people and the natural world that we depend on.
2: And what is money rebellion going to involve?
1: Well, it, it's still in, in flux. So we're, we're still talking to lots of circles within Extinction Rebellion about how it should look, taking feedback and advice on how it's going to actually look. And nothing, nothing's been decided. But at the moment, it, it involves financial education. So this is financial education that's aimed at, at rebels who want to do actions against financial institutions. So as part of that, we're, we're currently working on a new heading for Extinction Talk which is is i think ready this week.
2: I'm sorry to jump in but that seems like such a great idea because I think that many people just at large have woken up to the climate and ecological emergency but not everybody and or on radio and news programs you you don't hear people necessarily making the connection. With the financial system and our consumerist ways.
1: Absolutely agree with you. I mean, if we're to have any chance of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees, then whatever comes next has to involve drastically scaling down material throughput of industrial sectors. And that requires action from the financial institutions. But in terms of you're asking what actions it's going to involve, and it is around moving our money to where it's needed and away from a financial system that's destroying our future. So in practice that'll involve a whole range of different financial actions and there's a lot that can be done within the umbrella of money rebellion. That includes disputing debts owed to certain organisations based on the Serious Crime Act. And this legislation actually means it's illegal to encourage or assist organisations that we know to be committing offences by paying them our money. So in a sense, it's actually already illegal to pay many of the bills we currently pay. But then there's other other ideas around borrowing money and then anonymously donating it to organisations that are fighting ecological disruption on the front line. So this could be in the Amazon or HS2. There's so, there's so many ideas. It's, it's a really exciting area.
2: Also, I've heard of people wanting to hold back their share of the tax that goes to fossil fuel subsidies. That's another thing that some people are thinking about. Yes, all of that sounds really exciting. So when is it going to launch?
1: Well, soon, but, but not yet. We're, we're still gathering feedback and ideas from different circles in XR, as I said. You know, I, I think that the COVID crisis has really strengthened our resolve of people globally to make sure that there is no going back to the old system. A leading MP gave a great quote saying he would support rent and debt strikes and uh, Extinction Rebellion's proposal for direct action. The stars are aligning for this one.
2: So today we are featuring an interview with Jason Hickor. Do you know his work well?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've read some of it and watched quite a few of his videos. He's just such a clear communicator. And the degrowth topic that he's interested in at the moment is just... Such a hot topic, right? Yes,
2: now. and of course it links in with the work that Kate Rayworth is doing and uh, gives us a lot of hope in the area that we've been talking about. So uh, we're just about to go into that interview. Jason Hickle is an academic. He works at Goldsmiths. He's the author of two amazing books. The second is going to be out in August this year and is called Less Is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And one of the reasons I think that he's got such a fresh perspective is that he was born in Swaziland and he had doctor parents and he remember seeing people queuing up who were suffering from AIDS and he and his parents were well aware that the drugs were available to treat those people. And yet, because of the way that they're costed, they were unaffordable in South Africa and Swaziland.
1: Yeah, so we recorded this during uh, during lockdown via Zoom. So sometimes the quality, the audio quality isn't quite what we'd usually strive for. Might sound a little bit robotic at times.
2: (laughs) That's just me. And the Earth as an island metaphor that we heard at the top of the show was setting up a very striking parallel, both between the Earth as an island, but also comparing it to an ancient civilization.
0: One of the theories that we have for why the society on Easter Island collapsed was because they developed an economic system and a political system that was organized around these giant stone heads. So the heads came to represent power and prestige for different chiefs. And so there was competition on the islands to build as many of these heads as possible. And the problem with that was that in order to move these massive stone heads around the island, because there was only one quarry, then you had to fell trees on this forested island in order to do so. And so as this kind of intense, kind of religious almost scramble for, for building stone heads gained steam, then gradually the forest ecosystem began to tip out of balance. And if you look at Easter Island, pictures of Easter Island today, then it's an almost a completely deforested landscape. And that is not its natural state. That's a consequence, in fact, of the very process that led to the collapse of the society in the first place. We know that after a while, you know, as the forest declined, then animal species also declined. Water springs dried up. Agriculture began to collapse on the islands. They didn't have wood to build houses anymore or even boats to fish in. And so this led to a demographic collapse. Now, so the point I wanted to make with that example is simply that we ourselves in capitalist society are beholden to a similar kind of fetish where we have convinced ourselves that the most important sign of economic progress and political prestige and so on is GDP growth. And so we we have been scrambling to generate GDP growth more every year on an exponential curve. But behind the scenes, and increasingly not behind the scenes, right in front of our very eyes, what's happening is that we are, we are in the process of dismantling the very foundations of the living world on which we depend for our existence. And so while it might be easy for us to sneer at a small island society that fell prey to a, to a myth of its own devising, I think that we have our, you know, our own very problematic myths in our own society that we fail to really scrutinize. And I think that our unthinking obsession with GDP growth it's absolutely one of those.
2: I loved you used a comment by David Attenborough uh, in your chapter, which says, "Anyone who thinks you can have infinite growth on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist."
0: That's right. Yeah, whether or not that was David Attenborough who originally said it, it, it may be that it's it's wrongly attributed to him. But the point remains. Um, the thing about the Easter Islands uh, example is that is that historians have other possible explanations for what happened on that islands. But but the important points I think is that. We know that during the Austronesian expansion from Southeast Asia across the, across the islands where Easter Island is, then some societies succeeded and other societies failed and collapsed. And anthropologists and archaeologists are very clear that what counts for the difference between the two is the fact that some had expansionary economic and political systems and devastated the wow. ecologies in which they depended on islands, and others quickly learned to live within the boundaries of island ecosystems. And so these are fundamentally different kinds of ontologies, different ways of people seeing themselves in relation to the living world. And this was difficult because the people that populated the austin islands came from an expansive mainland's continents. So they were used to being able to use as many resources as they wanted with very little ecological impacts. I mean, of course there was some, but, but when they took that ideology onto an island, then it had devastating effects. And so they had to learn to
2: live differently. So can we go back to the beginning? Would you mind explaining what GDP is and when it came to be used as a measure of economic health?
0: So GDP is effectively a measure of all of the stuff that we extract and produce and consume and sell for money in the economy every year. So it measures monetary transactions of economic production. And that is a measure that came to exist in the 1930s in the wake of the Great Depression. Now, the economist who invented it, his name was Simon Kuznets. And the idea was that if you were able to see the economic activity in the economy more clearly, then you'll, you'll know what parts need to be improved, how to expand the money supply to get yourself out of the Depression. How do you raise the levels of economic activity to make sure that people have access to good wages and the things they need to live well, right? That was kind of the original idea. And Kuznets was very careful to say... GDP is effectively a dangerous measure of economic activity because if you start to pursue it as an objective in and of itself, it will have dangerous social and ecological consequences because it does not count the costs of growth. So if you cut down a forest and sell that forest for timber to IKEA for furniture, then GDP goes up. But it does not count the cost of losing that forest as a habitat for animals or as a sink for carbon emissions or whatever it might be. Okay, so that's just written off the books. And so Kuznets himself was very clear to say to the US Congress, never use this measure as an indicator of general economic welfare. (laughs) So how
2: did it come to be used as such a thing then?
0: So what happened was that during World War II, there was a really desperate need to be able to assess how much productive capacity and taxable income there was in the economy. So you knew how many resources you had available to you, for fighting the Nazis effectively. During this period, Kuznets's concerns about what GDP leaves out were pushed aside in favor of a kind of total devotion to GDP as the standard measure, because of the importance of the wartime effort. So it's kind of understandable in a way, but one of the reasons that GDP remains today so violent in a sense, so aggressive, is because it's is precisely because it's a wartime measure. Now, when in the wake of the war, when The world's nations got together at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 to decide how the global economy would be organized. They enshrined GDP growth or GDP as the standard measure of economic success. And in the following decades, it wasn't just GDP that became important. It wasn't just the levels of the economy that became important. It was growth as an objective itself. Um, And we see this uh, adopted by the OECD in 1961. At the founding of the OECD, the idea was to maximize GDP growth during the Cold War in the 60s and 70s, then the competition between the US and the USSR was organized in large part around which system could produce more economic growth. So GDP became this fetish that people focused on as an indicator of progress, when in fact, that's not at all what it actually meant. Yes,
2: it somehow has become conflated with progress, hasn't it, with human progress. And we need to kind of disentangle those. Yes,
0: that's right. Yeah, no, I mean, and this is important to point out is that up to a certain point, up to a certain low level, GDP growth does have a relationship to human well being because it produces more the kinds of resources that you might need to invest in, say, healthcare and education and so on. Now, crucially, it all depends on how income is distributed, which GDP figures themselves don't account for. And so, if you distribute income in a progressive kind of way, ensuring that workers have good wages and you invest in public goods like healthcare and education, then there can be a correlation between GDP growth and human welfare up to a point. But after that point, say after about $10,000 or $20,000 in terms of GDP per capita, the relationship completely breaks down. So, for example, we have the USA, GDP per capita of about $60,000. Compare that to Portugal. Portugal's GDP per capita is only about $20,000, a third that of the US, and yet Portugal has higher life expectancy and higher social indicators more or less across the board. How do they do it? by distributing income more fairly and by investing in robust universal public goods. And so Portugal is able able to achieve very high levels of human development with a relatively low GDP per capita because they're organized more around fairness than the U.S. is. And and that's tremendous, because if you think about it, that means that the equivalent of 13 trillion U.S. dollars in the U.S. is effectively wasted from the perspective of human welfare. The U.S. could have higher levels of human welfare with 66% less GDP per capita if they distributed income more fairly and invested in public goods. And so this is an extraordinary amount of waste with an extraordinary amount of ecological pressure, all with no gain for human progress.
2: And I think you also talk about GDP as being part of the system that has recolonized the global South for a second time.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, so in the wake of colonialism in the 50s, 60s and 70s, then most global South countries, most newly independent global South countries were electing progressive governments that were rebuilding their economies, organized in a way around improving human welfare, improving wages, you know, land reform, economic self-sufficiency and independence and so on. Okay? So the idea was to organize the economy around independence and human well-being rather than around extraction, which is the way the colonial economy was organized. Now, the problem with this approach from the perspective of Western powers, (laughs) right, was that Western powers were losing their access to the cheap labor and cheap raw materials and captive markets that they had enjoyed under colonialism, which were so essential to Western growth in the first place. And so what they did is they began to intervene, in some cases toppling progressive leaders and replacing them with dictators that were more amenable to their own economic interests. But more importantly, after 1980, using the World Bank and the IMF to impose structural adjustment programs across the Global South, which reversed the progressive policy reforms that these governments had been making, and instead effectively forced them to do everything possible to organize the economy around GDP growth and corporate profits, right? So that meant cutting public spending on healthcare and education. That meant cutting wage regulations. That meant cutting environmental regulations. That meant getting rid of capital controls and trade tariffs and so on. So during this period, the 80s and 90s, the global south, the economies of the global south were fundamentally remade around the objectives of capital accumulation rather than around the objective of welfare and independence. And that effectively worked. It returns profit growth to Western multinational companies. And so from that perspective, I think it's fairly straightforwardly rational on their, on their part. Um, that's what they were after. From the perspective of many of the people who work in the World Bank and the IMF, Who maybe even care about the poor i think that what was at stake was a very powerful ideology at the time which is effectively thatcherism and reaganism which is to say that the more market freedom you have the better this is going to be for everybody you'll have trickle-down economics and so on so the idea was that this would cause growth in the global south and that growth would allow poor countries to pay their debts back and improve welfare effectively in fact that didn't happen the first two decades of structural adjustment, the eighties and nineties utterly devastated global south economies, just shredded them and caused poverty rates to rise and hunger rates to rise. You know it was really a really humanitarian catastrophe that sparked riots across the south and so you have to ask yourself as this evidence piled up as it became clear that neoliberal structural adjustment was causing was causing misery and not economic growth, which is what it was intended to do, then the question becomes why did they not reverse course and they didn't reverse course because it was benefiting international banks and multinational companies so prodigiously. And so I think that there's, it's both ideology, but also a kind of economic real politic.
2: Why haven't there been, until recently, well-thought-out alternatives to that?
0: I think that there are alternatives. There are alternatives that have been around since the 1970s, you know, with the birth of ecological economics. The problem is that it's been marginalized by mainstream economists and just hasn't been taken seriously. And so it's been developing kind of in the background, as it were. I think these ideas have been lying around. But the problem is that usually there's only really room for a kind of dramatic shift when there's a crisis. Okay, so if you think about the way that neoliberalism works, neoliberal ideas were being formulated from the 1940s and so for about three decades, they were being devised and pushed out by think tanks They were kind of lying around waiting to be picked up. But it wasn't until the crisis of the 1970s and then the debt crisis in the 1980s that they were really picked up and kind of used.
2: Yes, exactly. Wouldn't it be wonderful to kind of ape their MO and post-COVID sort of jump in with alternative economic models and try and rejig the system? It seems like a bit of a reach at the moment, but in any case, that's what, we would love the Extinction Rebellion. So if GDP is so very harmful, what are the alternatives open to us?
0: Well, I mean, the first step is, you know, is really to abandon GDP as a measure of the economy (laughs) and replace it with something more rational and reasonable. And this is not a controversial opinion. I mean, there's lots of even mainstream economists like Amartya Sen and Joseph Stiglitz who support the idea of getting rid of GDP and replacing it it with an alternative. And there are many alternatives we could look to. One of them is the genuine progress indicator, which basically starts from GDP and then subtracts social and ecological costs from that. So, if if politicians are given the task of pursuing GPI growth instead of GDP growth, it would it will change their approach to governing. They'll be incentivized, right, to to reduce ecological costs and improve social welfare, for example. But but here's the thing: is that I think it's dangerous for us to to simply believe that switching away from GDP towards a more holistic indicator is going to solve the problem in and of itself. And the reason is because GDP is not a mistake. It was devised specifically in order to measure the welfare of capitalism. And capitalism is a system that is structurally dependent on exponential growth and expansion. So even if you switch to a different indicator, then in the background, capitalism is likely to continue chewing through more energy and more resources every year, because that's what capital does. And so this really forces us into a deeper, more serious reckoning. How can we shift to an economy that is not predicated on endless growth in the first place? Um, And so
2: what are the other important factors?
0: Well, the first and most important thing is this. It's quite simple. And that is we need to face up to the challenge that is at hand. And that is that we need to get the global economy to zero emissions before 2050. Now, for high-income nations like Britain, given their outsized contributions to historical emissions, it has to be much quicker than that in order to account for the principle of equity in the climate treaty. And that means that Britain needs to be at zero before 2030, ideally. And this is interesting because people will accuse XR's demand for zero emissions by 2025 as too radical and implausible. But in fact, it's roughly in keeping with what the scientists at the Stockholm Environment Institute have routinely called for, which is that high-income nations need to be at zero by 2030. Now, the problem here is that it's impossible for us to transition the global economy to 100% renewable energy fast enough to stay within the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees Celsius if we continue growing the global economy at the same time.
2: Okay, so green growth won't work, in
0: your view? Yes, that's right. I should clarify, of course, we need a rapid transition to renewables. We need to throw everything we have at this problem. We need a Green New Deal that does that with mass policy mobilization. But it's scientifically incorrect of us to assume that we can accomplish that while at the same time growing the economy. And here's why. Because the more we grow the economy, the more energy the economy uses. And the more energy the economy uses, the more difficult it is for us to supply that demand with new renewable sources. So it's kind of like we're choosing to fight a life and death battle while facing uphill, blindfolded with our hands tied behind our backs. It's needlessly difficult when you're doing it in the context of a growing economy. If you don't grow the economy, or if you scale down energy use, then it becomes much easier. And that's exactly what the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is telling us to do. Their only feasible strategy scenario for reaching zero emissions in time to keep warming under 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees is to to reduce energy use in high-income countries. So what is the easiest way to reduce energy use? This is not about, I want to emphasize, this is not about individual behavior change. I mean, of course, we need to change our our light bulbs to LED and we need to insulate our houses, et cetera, et cetera. But this is ultimately about how our economy works. We need to change the way that industrial production operates because the vast majority of, of the energy our economy uses is by industry. It's to extract and produce and transport and consume and process the waste from all of the material stuff that our economy chews through every year. So it really becomes a question of materials. If we can scale down the material throughput in our economy, the resources that we use every year, then we can reduce our energy use and make it much easier for us to achieve a rapid transition to renewables as quick as 2025 or 2030. That is possible. And the crucial thing here is to point out this. We do not want all economic activity to scale down. We want to be able to distinguish between what is useful and important and necessary economic activity and what is not. So let's degrow uh-huh. industries like the production of SUVs and private jets. And let's degrow advertising, which produces pressures for needless consumption. Let's degrow uh-huh. the practice of planned obsolescence, whereby products are made to break down in order to stimulate more product turnover. Let's de-grow McMansions and golf courses, okay? Yeah. The industrial beef industry and so on. But at the same time, we'll need to grow other industries, okay? We need to grow the renewable energy industry. We need to grow our public health system to make it whole again. We need to expand, you know, public higher education, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the, like some industries will need to grow, yeah. others need to shrink dramatically. And this brings me to an important point, and that is, and that is this, right? When you start proposing to scale down certain ecologically destructive and socially less necessary industries, politicians will squirm because they'll say, what about jobs? What about jobs? And we hear this on the left and the right alike. Now, there's an easy solution to this, which ecological economists have been, have been calling for for a very long time, and that is simply to shorten the working week. As we liberate people from unnecessary labor, the labor required to produce planned obsolescence, the labor required to produce SUVs, whatever it might be then we can liberate everybody in terms of excess labor time by sharing work more fairly with a shortened working week. And that can come along with a living wage policy pegged to the week rather than the hour. So we ensure that as we scale down necessary labor time, everybody has access to jobs that also pay a living wage. And that can be accomplished easily by redistributing income within our economy. The income differential between the the rich and the poor is extreme. And even within companies, it's extreme where you have CEOs earning 300 times more than the average worker. A lot of that can be compressed to ensure that despite a shorter working week and contracting unnecessary industries, you can supply everybody with the wages they need to live well. That's crucial.
2: I think anyone who's seen the film The Corporation know that companies do not act as ethical citizens of this world. I think that's another area you've got in your sights, isn't it?
0: Look, one of the problems with corporations is that they tend to set as their objective the maximization of shareholder value at the cost of more or less anything else. (laughs) Now, in some cases, this is because there appear to be rules that require them to do that. In other cases, there's just the assumption that there there are such rules, and they do it it anyways. But I think one of the crucial drivers of this is is not only that we need laws to free corporations from that obligation, but also that we need to democratize share ownership right now, not only are shares owned almost entirely by rich people, or at least disproportionately by the rich, but also the decisions made about shares are monopolized almost entirely by a small number of of companies like BlackRock, for example, and Vanguard, whose boards make the decision on the part of other capital holders for what to do with companies. And what this means is that The people running decisions on company boards end up being a very small number of completely democratically illegitimate decision makers. And so the more we can democratize shareholding, I think the more we can take pressure off of this kind of growth and profit addiction that corporations basically have.
2: Looking at your book, I see that another way you think that the financial or the economic system at the moment is dysfunctional is that it is based on debt and that money itself is based on debt. That seems a bit counterintuitive to me as a regular reader. Of, mm. Can you explain to me how that works? It's
0: interesting. If you walk into a bank and take out a loan, then you probably assume that the bank is, is lending money that they have from other people's savings, maybe stored in their vault in the basement somewhere. But in fact, that's not how, how lending works at all. When a bank gives you a loan, then they... They literally create that money out of thin air in the process of crediting your account. It comes out of nowhere. It's extraordinary. So this is what we call fractional reserve banking. So 97% of the money that circulates through our economy is basically debt. Now, the problem with this is that debt comes with interest, and interest is a compound function. And so as a consequence, with our economy filled with debt-based currency, this creates extraordinary pressures for us to run around finding ways to extract And produce things right in order to create value to pay back debts that have exponentially growing interest rates on them and so we're all effectively under this additional pressure that is kind of well that is clearly ecologically destructive so there are interesting proposals for how we could shift from a debt-based currency system to a, a more positive money system or a public money system and i would encourage people to look at the positive money website it's a campaigning group here in the UK. And the idea basically is that we can change the money system such that instead of having private banks create money and then lend it into circulation, we can have the state or a kind of independent democratic branch of the state create money debt free and spend it into the system. Right? And that, that's a way of increasing the money supply when necessary that does not come along with debt packaged into it. And that would take an immense amount of ecological pressure out of our economy.
2: These ideas that you're talking about, are they post growth? Are they degrowth ideas? How, how would you characterize them?
0: Well, so it's important to draw a distinction between those terms. Post growth is, and I realize it can be a bit confusing for first timers. Post growth is basically the, the argument that we need to build economies that A, do not fetishize GDP growth as an objective, but B, which can remain stable without growing and do so in such a way that does not cause social misery. So in our existing growth-dependent system, if there's a slowdown, if growth stops, then this causes layoffs, it causes people to lose their homes and debts to pile up, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to build an economy that can slow down without causing social crises. That's what post-growth economics is about. Degrowth is simply saying that at the same time, we also need to, at least in high-income nations, actively scale down excess energy and resource use in the economy in order to, on the one hand, enable a rapid transition to renewables, and on the other hand, remove pressure from ecosystems. Now, it's crucial that I emphasize, this is not about reducing GDP. This is about reducing resource and energy use, and not everywhere in high-income nations, and not all industries in ecologically destructive industries. That's the crucial distinction here. So that's kind of what degrowth is about.
2: Yes, I think, you know, when you look back, when I look back to the 70s or even the year 2000, which I think given this exponential growth, I think our use of our consumer output, our kind of footprint has doubled in that time. But I don't feel like I have doubled the number of computers. So I suppose that quite a lot of the things that make up those numbers are things that we would re- regarded stupidities like plastic bottles for water, and for example when on a train when they have digitized the use of the water so that it requires energy in order to give me water, whereas, you know, you can do it mechanically. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) There's an awful lot of complexity about our world, which we really don't need, and frankly, mostly makes me miserable.
0: I think you raise a really important point here. So, and this is interesting. Consider, so this is true of both the US and UK, but many other countries, but I'll use the US as an example. So in the 1970s, in 1975, the USA had higher average real wages and had a lower poverty rate and higher happiness levels than it does today, despite a doubling in real GDP per capita. So America is twice as rich today than the 1970s and yet has lower social indicators. And so this is a clear example of how additional GDP growth is not organized around meeting, around meeting human needs. In fact, in many cases, yes. it makes people's lives worse because it requires yeah. longer working hours, it erodes your access to social welfare, green spaces, whatever it might be.
2: These new ideas are very exciting and uh, seem to fit the bill going forward. But has anybody at all taken them up?
0: Yes, you know, I mean, so t- to some extent, we're seeing some changes in this direction. I mean, they're small steps, OK, but there are changes. So we've seen, for example, New Zealand's recently came out saying that they would remove GDP growth as an objective in the next budget and instead organise the budget around welfare. That's a huge step. Ultimately, that's a that's a first step towards a post-capitalist economy. Because a post-capitalist economy is an economy that is organized around human welfare and ecological stability rather than around perpetual capital accumulation. People were excited about that. The story went viral online. Very exciting. Clearly, people are ready for something different. Scotland followed suit soon after, and then also Iceland. And so it's clear that some governments are willing to start taking steps in this direction. And that's, I think, very promising. Then we also have governments like... Costa Rica, for example, which has built an economy that allows them to deliver world leading levels of human welfare, despite remaining almost entirely within planetary boundaries. And that's extraordinary. It shows what can really be done when you organize your economy around welfare and ecology rather than around growth. So yeah, there's some exciting possibilities out there that I think are, are worth looking at, but, but we, need, we need changes that are deeper and faster. And that's what we need to accomplish in the next few years.
2: That's fantastic, Jason. We're so sorry to you and to listeners that we are doing this via a Zoom call. So the quality is not our usual studio wonderful quality. Although that said, we've also done podcast interviews by the side of Rebellion sitting in the road. I remember sitting in the road with George (laughs) Mombio. Well, people were getting arrested around us. But Jason, for people who you have fascinated during this podcast on this subject, where would you recommend that they go and do some further reading? You've mentioned Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. Any other tips?
0: Yeah. So um, again, I have uh, I have a new book coming out. It will be released in August. It's called It's called Less Is More: How Degrowth Will Save the World, and that's being published by Penguin. So keep an eye out for that. You can also check out my website, jasonhickle.org. I keep all of my writing and academic articles and blog posts, et cetera, all up there for free. You could also take a look at a wonderful book called Degrowth, A Vocabulary for a New Era. And I think you mentioned an interesting book called In Defense of Degrowth. So there's a number of opportunities out there when you start looking around. It's, a, it's an exciting new space that is sort of paradoxically growing really quickly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, the exponential growth in the degrowth area.
1: Oh we have run out of excuses and we are running out of time.
2: I found that really exciting to hear about economies that are not putting GDP first but are putting Ideas of human thriving first. In fact, and I was really interested to hear about Christiana Figueres because she's been on the podcast a couple of times, and I'd love to interview her about what's going on in Costa Rica. What did you think, Will?
1: Oh yeah, hearing stories from uh, from other countries that are managing to get this more right than we are is is just so. Uh, it just gives me a sense of hope, really. But uh, yeah, I I personally find um, it really interesting to hear academics talking about how ecological economists have been excluded from mainstream economics in this country.
2: I know. I was just amazed to think the other day that Kate Rayworth's book, which is having such an impact, was only published in 2017. So this whole area feels really new. But as Jason was saying, some of it has been sidelined by mainstream economic studies.
1: And, and Kate's a really interesting one as well, because I, I've heard her say in interviews that she essentially disowned economics as a profession early on, and then went back to it when she realised that economics was the problem. Her donor economics is, a, is it's almost a, a riposte to the dominant neoclassical economic mindset that's sort of taken a hold on our policymakers.
2: I'm quite interested with her, though, as well, because she doesn't absolutely advocate non-growth. She says that you can have growth so long as it's within the donut. Whereas people like Jason, even Kevin Anderson, who we had the the other day is saying very clearly, we've got to get off growth, that it's kind of like an addiction. And while that's going on, we are ruining the planet.
1: It's funny, isn't it? Because growth in, in every other kind of, in every other sense is normally a positive thing for humans, but it seems that there's nothing else in nature that just grows infinitely. Most things re- like trees reach maturity. I've, I've got to, I think, six foot one now. I don't think I'm getting any taller. So we grow to a point of maturity and then, and then that's yes. enough. But for the economy, it seems that there's an expectation of infinite growth.
2: Thank you for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not check out our back catalogue in which we look at issues very important to XR, such as non-violence, regenerative cultures, citizen assemblies, and XR's carbon net zero target of 2025. I've been Jessica Townsend.
1: And I've been Will.
2: run out of excuses and we are running out of
1: time.
0: We're looking at mass starvation within ten years. The reality is we're sleepwalking
1: into a catastrophe. Change is coming whether you like it or not. Extinction